Welcome to the Identity Trust Pulse, where we bring you the latest insights and trends from the fraud and identity industry. Good day, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Today, we'll be talking about email intelligence and how it helps us with fraud prevention. A quick introduction about myself. I'm Manas Gudugunur. I'm a director in the fraud and identity market planning team. And with me is Ian Griffin. Ian, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, certainly. Thank you for having me, Maz. Uh, my name is Ian Griffin. I'm Senior Director of Product Management. Managing our LexisNexis emailage portfolio here at LexisNexis within the digital fraud space. All right. Thanks, Ian. One of the things that we have recognized and we see in our day-to-day lives is how much of our transactions and lives are spent online and creating new accounts, logging in, making purchases, and also seeing a whole lot of emails come through to you. Today, we'll focus on how email or emails and how LexisNexis emailage as a product leverages email intelligence to help you with fraud prevention or helps with fraud and identity risk assessment and risk management. So Ian, as we kick it off, let me ask you a very basic question. You know, with so many things, with so many different aliases that exist, in the online and in the digital world. Is email still the foundation to a consumer's digital identity? Yes. You know, I would say even now more than ever, you know, if we think about people, they're continuing to transact online. The email address remains a primary piece of information that is collected by companies. I feel like this is a valuable piece of information that really serves as a customer's unique identity within the digital space. You know, it's used heavily in new account openings, account maintenance, and card not present transactions, just as some examples. Additionally, it is the primary form for the company to communicate with its customers as they generally prefer using this medium above others. You know, thinking about that, there were some recent numbers that were published by Statistica, which indicate that 65% of retail and 55% of entertainment customers prefer email as their primary method of communication. Additionally, within the U.S., communication via email ranks as the second highest form of personal communication, and that's after text messaging, and it's also outperforming things like phone calls, messaging apps, social media, and video calls. So email definitely is still a extremely critical piece of our consumer's digital identity. I agree, and couldn't agree with you more. I look at myself and I see myself checking my emails so often And I'm always looking for someone to communicate, especially a business, to communicate with me any promotions, anything that I need to look at from a, don't know, from a financial institution perspective, that there was an alert, somebody has used it. I think email is the medium that I prefer. And I've also, I believe that some of the results that we've seen in Statista is that, you know, people prefer that as the mode of communication. So I couldn't agree with you more based on, you know, various analyst reports out there. Going into more data, you know, the research by the Data and Marketing Association reveals that 51% of people have held the same email address for over 10 years. How do you think businesses can leverage this transactional and risk, uh, you know, high behavioral history behind an email address to prevent fraud? 
How does that get built, Ian? Yeah, well, you know, if we step back and think about fraud, you know, I would contend that the most important element in catching up and catching fraud is to understand a consumer's real behavior. So let's think about the email address. You know, let's use myself as an example. I think I created my current email address, I don't know, about 20 years ago. Now, within that time, I've had a lot of changes in my life. And this included everything from getting married to having a child. During this period, I have changed my address seven times. I've changed my phone number four times. And I've easily transacted with well over 20 devices in the form of things like computers, tablets, and phones from a multitude of IP addresses. You might say that my email address has been one of the most enduring pieces of information about me for the last 20 years. I've had my email address longer than I have been married as we just celebrated our 15 year anniversary. (laughs) You know, if we look at some numbers, you know, we know that 89% of consumers check their email daily which can drive consumer behavior as well as access. The average number of accounts associated with an email address come in to around 130 accounts, and that drives stability with the email address. I mean, can you imagine changing your email address and then having to proactively update 130 accounts? I would honestly have anxiety attacks if I was asked to do that. So I definitely don't look at that. And I agree with you. Like I have been using my Gmail address forever and everywhere I go, I just prefer giving that. Um, Some folks prefer to use different email addresses, but I don't think majority of us have the, you know, at least I'll talk for myself. I don't have the patience to remember like 13 different email addresses for 13 different, um, you know, websites that I go to. But, you know, talking about that and just shifting gears, they also these new email addresses or email providers have, you know, ability to create tumbling and tumble your emails. How how do you see that shaping up and how do you think a product like EmailAge addresses that aspect? Yeah. So one thing we do within the LexisNexis EmailAge product is we're able to pierce that tumbling and enumeration practice to really understand what's the true email address that's driving those types of transactions. Now, that's critically important to understand the underlying email because, again, that's going to drive a lot of the behaviors that we see within that email address. You know, if you think about that tenured nature of an email address, the constant access that people use with it and the powerful stability, it is uniquely positioned to understand the consumer's behavior and hence detect abnormal behavior. So thinking about how businesses can leverage that, they can leverage it by monitoring an email address's behavior and keeping an eye out for an abnormal pattern. You know, for example, if my email is used an average of five times per month to do stuff like 
check my, 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 my bank accounts or, you know, subscribe to my food service or, or, or things of that nature. Um, if it's then used 30 times in one day, something may be up, right? That's an abnormal mm-hmm. pattern. Yep. You know, and just lastly here, if the behavior of my email address is typically seen with a specific billing or shipping address or an IP and or my phone number, and then all of a sudden transactions with my email address come up with different elements, something might be up. So, but Ian, sometimes just trying to double click on that one, for example, I may use a different shipping address and maybe a new device because I'm visiting a friend's place. I don't have my iPad or my phone is dead and I'm trying to access and I'm trying to ship something to give a gift to my sister, you know, and how does email age identify such behavior? Would you qualify this as abnormal? Do you qualify this as normal? How, how does that happen? Yeah, so so LexisNexis email has specific confidence scores where we're always looking at these pairs of information as they're associated to the email address. So in your example, you usually use your email address maybe with your home address. And then all of a sudden you're making a purchase where you're going to ship the product over to a family member which lives in a different address. Within our product, we'll instantly observe that these two data variables haven't normally been seen together. So we'll do something that's called decreasing our confidence scores associated to those variables. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a fraudulent transaction, whereas in this case it's not, but it should give pause to our customers to maybe step up the journey a little bit and maybe authenticate the transaction or provide another layer of fraud intelligence just to make absolutely sure that the transaction is legitimate. So it acts as a really good early flag to make sure that everything syncs up and looks correctly based on your past behaviors. So these confidence scores actually help you identify um, at an element level, whether these pair of elements actually we've seen it together and how confident we are. So a business, if I was to think out loud, can actually process the transaction, but potentially still keep it on hold if they so choose based on their business model to confirm later so that it doesn't impact the customer experience at that point in time, but potentially they can make a decision later on to secure that transaction and make the customer feel more confident. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's a great example of how a customer might alter their risk flow given this information. That's great. I think I think LexisNexis emailage does definitely provide that flexibility, especially with this digital confidence score. Thanks for sharing that information. Some of the things that come to mind is, you know, when when I think about all the different products that are out there from a fraud risk assessment perspective, what do you think uh, LexisNexis emailages use cases and what are the use cases that it supports from an email risk assessment? Any thoughts around that, Ian, that you can share? Certainly. You know, I've, I've seen email risk assessment and LexisNexis emailage be leveraged at many points within the customer journey. You know, the most used points seem to be a new account opening card not present transactions in the payment space and others, and also for account maintenance. 
the types of fraud that we're frequently catching and we're observing with this tend to be around chargeback fraud, first party fraud, first party default, fraudulent applications, account takeover, and synthetic ID fraud. There's definitely more to the list, but those seem to be the prevalent pieces of information that we observe within our fraud consortium when we gain feedback from all of our customers using LexisNexis emailage. That makes sense, Ian. I just want to add here that I also see a use case, especially in the account management and talking about digital confidence score. In the account management space, when we think about third-party fraud or you know account takeover, you know if somebody is coming in and making an update to an existing account and changing the phone number associated with an email address, the consortium and the vast data that you have historical behavior can kind of tell you that hey, this phone number does not belong to this account and it's a very high-risk change event, and the customer or the merchant or the business can actually um, you know, take notice of that and either introduce some high-risk authentication or actually stop that action completely, right? So do you see third-party fraud also being supported by email age? Yeah, we, we definitely have, and it, it comes through many different forms. Um, you know, third-party fraud could be synthetic ID, it could be an account takeover, so there's a lot of ways that that pops up and and is observed across our platform. Thanks, Ian. Now, one of the things that we started off when I started off this discussion was I was talking about social aliases and social media data. How does that help, you know, if we were to combine, does LexisNexis email age combine social media intelligence data with the historical intelligence that you have around an email address? And how does that help from a data source perspective? Yeah, so it's, it's definitely an interesting topic. You know, social media profiling and data is just one data point that we use in association with the email address. Some other examples are things like IP address, billing shipping address, name, phone number. But just as an example, again, because the email address has such a rich history, understanding how these other variables interact with the email address can be extremely valuable. So the relationship of these variables to the email address can help us be confident on if there is disparate data points aligned or if they're not aligned, which can definitely be an indicator of fraud like we discussed. You know, here's an example. If we see the same five IP addresses from a specific region to be associated in transactions to a specific email address, and then we see an IP address from a different region of the world be associated with it, it should cause us to pause. You know, this could be the owner of the email address traveling, so it could be a legitimate transaction, or it could be a fraudster who stole the email address and is trying to use it within a transaction. Stepping up authentication could be a great next step in this example. Another example, thinking about the social media question, is we could look at the social media in relation to the email address. You know, are there social media accounts set up that relate to that email address? Is there proof of life within those accounts? Things like a profile picture, 
you know, friend counts and or recent posts or activities with the associated social media accounts. Another thought is, does the name of the social media account match with the name of the email owner? So social media can provide another vector with the email address for proactively identifying fraud. A final example I can think of has to do with a phone number in association to the email address. So we can also compare the phone owner with the owner of that email address, and we can understand which phone numbers have been seen with that email address historically. We could then see if the location of the phone number input matches where we see the email address transacting from. Again, any of these observations could be a leading indicator of fraud. I guess to summarize it up, in short, the email address can and does act as a unique key and understand what other data variables are regularly associated with that email is paramount in better catching fraud before it's too late. Yeah, I mean, thanks, Ian. I think that makes sense. I completely agree with you based on how I think about myself and how email addresses have just become, you know, everybody has an email address. Um, back in the day, uh, people used to try to figure out how do you get an email address? And now it's just natural. My son has an email address. I need to start figuring out how can I get a unique email address for my daughter. So it starts building up very early these days. So very interesting discussions. Now, one of the things that is happening and it's the trend that is not a trend, but, you know, has been a big technology revolution over the last two months is the generative AI with ChatGPD, OpenAI. How is email age ready and geared to address the challenges that come with generative AI for fraud? Yeah, yeah. So we've recently invested a lot of time within this area. And recently we've developed a new fully machine learning driven product currently called Emailage Machine Learning, and that will be launching in 2024. So what this product does is it can evaluate thousands of attributes from Emailage in conjunction with that valuable fraud feedback we get from our customers in our consortium to create a highly tuned model for fraud identification. And then every month, a champion challenger approach happens in which the product constructs a new model from the attributes and fraud feedback to go against the current champion model. The model that performs better wins out for the next month. So think of like a boxing match every month and the winner is still standing and progresses. You know, this means that the product is going to continually calibrate to each and every customer's unique fraud experience by leveraging the fraud feedback along with thousands of attribute types used today to understand the most impactful ones and create a highly customized model as fraud trends evolve. You know, as we all know, and, and we've discussed here, fraud vectors can look very, very different from industry to industry and country to country and even customer to customer, especially when leveraging AI. And it's critical that we stay ahead of it.
Now, I agree. AI, generative AI, we need to stay ahead of it. Businesses, customers, we're seeing this in our overall in the market landscape across industries where it's definitely, you know, the first thing that we hear from CEOs and top leaders is that it can really help with, you know, improving the operations. You know, fraudsters are quick to adapt to such technologies and leverage it for their own gain. So uh, businesses should also consider the risk that this technology not only poses to their business model from their own revenue generation perspective, but also from revenue protection perspective. So I'm glad LexisNexis email age is already front and center and ahead of this and uh, looking forward to how the launch for email age machine learning, um, you know, moves along in 2024. With this, I want to thank Ian again for his time, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you'd like to learn more about how LexisNexis Emailage uses powerful network intelligence and predictive fraud risk scoring to help prevent fraud, visit the link in the description. Thank you for listening, and make sure you tune in again soon for another episode of the Identity Trust Pulse. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to and shall not be used as legal advice. The views and opinions expressed in this program are solely those of the speakers and don't necessarily reflect the views or position of LexisNexis Risk Solutions. LexisNexis Risk Solutions does not warrant that the information provided in this podcast is accurate or error-free.